This is the Late Round Podcast with your host, JJ Zacharisa. What's up, everyone? It's JJ Zacharyson, the editor-in-chief over at NumberFire.com, and this is episode 125 of the Late Round Podcast, one of the many shows that are part of the NumberFire Podcast Network. Thanks for tuning in. If you looked at the title of today's episode and you said to yourself, I've seen that title before, it's because you probably have, or you have if you've been listening to the show for a while. When the draft concluded last year, I realized that I wanted to share analysis of the draft and how it impacted fantasy football the same way that I do it in my head. And that's by looking at the investments these teams made in certain players and certain positions, because a lot of times it can give us an idea of the type of team they want to be. Because as we know, volume drives fantasy football, and volume is often dictated by how a coaching staff simply views a player. If they like him, he'll be on the field. If not, he won't. Through the actions made by teams in the draft, you can tell not only how teams may be feeling about new personnel, but existing personnel as well. Now, this is definitely oversimplifying what goes into a volume equation. Don't get me wrong. To prepare myself for this podcast, I finished up initial projections for the 2018 season, and when I build out projections, it's not as simple as, they like this guy, so he'll see a 60% share in their backfield. To get a good volume number, you've got to look at things at the team level first, predict how the offense is going to perform, examine the type of game scripts they'll see, and then look at market share trends to find volume numbers. But in helping solve the market share equation or the percentage of carries or targets a player is going to see, you can most definitely look at the draft capital spent on a player. You better believe, for instance, that the Giants are going to utilize Saquon Barkley after spending a second overall pick on him. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's examine the minds of front offices from afar to see what it means for fantasy football this year and moving forward. I've already talked your ears off about Dave Gettleman and running back valuation. We're moving past that, you guys. It's time to focus on fantasy football and the beautiful, beautiful stat lines Saquon Barkley could produce in 2018. It's very clear that the Giants want to run the football and utilize Saquon Barkley. You don't spend the second overall pick on a running back for him to ride the bench. And historically, backs selected in the top five have seen a lot of immediate opportunity. Leonard Fournette last year saw 268 carries and 48 targets. Ezekiel Elliott the year before had 322 rush attempts. Trent Richardson had 267. Darren McFadden only had 113, but there's Reggie Bush who had 155 rushes and 121 targets in year one. Ronnie Brown saw over 200 carries in less than 16 games played, and so on. If you're drafted early, you're going to see a lot of touches. Barkley is going to see volume, not just because he's really good, but because of how his team values him. So I'm kicking things off today to just share that my current projections have Saquon Barkley at about 1,180 yards rushing, almost seven rushing touchdowns, about 65 catches, 562 receiving yards, and a couple of more touchdowns through the air. I'm not saying that I'd necessarily draft him here, but as of today, he's only behind Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, David Johnson, and Ezekiel Elliott in projected PPR points. I say that I wouldn't necessarily draft him there because there's still room for variance. Like I always say on this show, a projection is just the most likely outcome. Variance exists. We're looking at one end number for these players when so much can happen, especially for a player who's yet to step on an NFL field. But by the start of the fantasy football season, it would not shock me one bit if I have Saquon Barkley ahead of players like Leonard Fournette, Alvin Kamara, and Kareem Hunt in PPR formats. So we had a pair of wideouts drop off the board next in DJ Moore and Calvin Ridley, who went to Carolina and Atlanta. 
It was Saquon Barkley, and then a long wait until we got another fantasy-relevant position. And that excludes quarterbacks, of course, because quarterbacks don't matter in fantasy football. I see both the Ridley and Moore picks as good team-building ones. Atlanta gets the literal perfect compliment to Julio Jones, and you guys know that I think DJ Moore is easily the best receiver in this year's class. And it was pretty cool to see him as the first receiver drafted. And where the Panthers are right now is pretty interesting. A huge low-key winner in the NFL draft was Christian McCaffrey. The team just lost Jonathan Stewart, who finished last year with the fourth most goal line carries in football and over 40% of the team's rushes. All of a sudden, that's freed up, and the Panthers didn't even draft a running back this past weekend. So Christian McCaffrey is now far and away the best runner in that backfield. He only had 117 carries last year, and I think there's this feeling amongst fantasy football owners that he can't handle a significant workload. And that may be true to some degree, but McCaffrey did carry the ball 337 times in his 2015 season at Stanford, and he was pacing towards that number as well in 2016. I am very intrigued by McCaffrey because he's got room to grow as a runner, and even if he doesn't, he'll provide a nice receiving floor for you. That receiving floor did take somewhat of a hit on Thursday night when the team drafted DJ Moore, though. It's not because they play the same position, it's just because there's an added piece to the Carolina Panthers receiving pie. So while McCaffrey should be heavily involved in the offense through the air, I have him for about 72 receptions this year, it probably won't be like it was a season ago. But with that being said, he has a lot more upside on the ground and at the goal line, which will bump up his fantasy total. Just watch and see if the Panthers make a free agency move at running back. But with DJ Moore specifically, I think it's pretty easy to see why he'd have a higher ceiling than Calvin Ridley at this point. Ridley's not just handcuffed by Julio Jones' presence and the fact that he'll demand a high target share in Atlanta's offense. But Atlanta has also utilized Tevin Coleman and Devontae Freeman out of the backfield as receivers a good bit over the last two seasons. Even last year without Kyle Shanahan, Freeman and Coleman combined for almost 17% of the team's targets. Moore and Ridley have pretty similar projections for year one, but Moore has the ability to climb his depth chart immediately. Like, would it shock anyone if DJ Moore sees more targets than Devin Funches this year? I'm not projecting that. Remember, projections are the most likely outcome, but it's certainly possible. And with the Panthers' current personnel, we may be seeing a more pass-friendly offense than we've seen in the recent past. The overarching theme at wide receiver with this rookie class is that it's not going to be easy for most of them to produce here in year one. But I do think that DJ Moore, especially given how I see him as a prospect, I do think that DJ Moore has an interesting ceiling that won't show up in a projection. After Moore and Ridley came off the board, the Seahawks followed things up by selecting Rashad Penny. Now, I hated the pick from a team building perspective because Seattle's issues really go deeper than just the running back position. I think teams think that a running back can change everything, and while Penny's a huge upgrade over what they had last year, the team has little receiving and offensive line depth. But after the Penny pick, Pete Carroll allegedly said that the Seahawks are going to quote, reset and get back to rushing the ball. Again, I think it's far easier said than done because the defense isn't nearly as strong as it was back in the Marshawn Lynch days. A better defense allows you to dictate play calling a little more if you're not playing from behind. I also don't really understand why you're not wanting to have the ball in Russell Wilson's hands, but hey, I'm not an NFL head coach. I'm just some dude who analyzes fantasy football from a standing desk in his suburban Charlotte home. These comments and the equity spent on Rashad Penny, though, mean that he should get work immediately. Penny was my objective RB2 entering the draft, meaning my running back model liked him more than any other running back aside from Saquon Barkley. And then when I went to do my rankings, I placed Darius Geis ahead of him because Geis had injury issues and I figured that he'd see a much higher draft pick. My model didn't love Darius Geis as much as it did Rashad Penny, but there were reasons for it. But I was clearly wrong. Darius Geis slipped. So to me, Penny is actually my RB2 in rookie drafts. 
And here in year one, I've got him at 242 rushes, about 1,000 yards on the ground, and I think there's a chance for him to see over 40 receptions. It depends how they end up deploying him as a receiver. As Elliot Chris noted a couple of weeks back on this podcast, Penny's pass blocking is horrendous. So maybe they don't trot him out there much on third down, even if third down backs aren't just solely pass blocking. But all this being said, the Seahawks clearly love Rashad Penny, and they want to run him into the ground. That's good for fantasy purposes. Sony Michelle dropped off the board to New England next, or as the next fantasy-relevant player in this year's draft. Now, I was admittedly a little surprised by the pick, but New England's also in a situation where they can take luxury players at the end of the first, as opposed to a team like Seattle, who's probably not going to be a playoff team this year. Now, what this tells me is that New England does indeed want to fill that Dion Lewis void with more than just Rex Burkhead, Mike Gillisley, and Jeremy Hill. And given they're a win-now team and they spent a late first on Sony Michelle, I'm expecting him to see the highest number of carries in that backfield this year. And if he's getting goal line touches too, then he'll be a lot more fantasy relevant than people think. I was actually running the FanDuel Twitter account on Thursday night during day one of the draft, and I sent a tweet out that said something along the lines of, well, I guess Sony Michelle will be fantasy relevant this year. And it was met with comments like, is this sarcasm? And good luck with that. I really get annoyed by the Patriots running back narrative, you guys. Deion Lewis saw over 40% of the team's carries last year despite not getting going until the Patriots realized Mike Gillisley wasn't the best fit for them. In 2016, LeGarrette Blunt saw 62% of the team's backfield touches. And in 12 games in 2015, Blunt's rushing share was 43%. Extrapolate that across 16 games and you're looking at 220 carries. So I do think Michelle can see a decent enough workload in the run game right away. I have him projected for 209 carries, which would result in seven to eight touchdowns. And then there's the wild card of what happens through the air. It may be easy to dismiss Michelle as a pass catcher with Rex Burkhead and James White in New England, and just judging by the responses on social media, it does seem like that's how things are being viewed. But I think Michelle can just play the Deion Lewis role. Lewis still had over 6% of the team's targets last year, and that was without being an early down guy for a lot of the season. I played it conservatively with my projection of Michelle, and he came out with a little over 20 receptions, but I do think there's room for growth there. And I think Michelle could be slightly undervalued due to the New England Patriots running back narrative that's out there as well. Day two of the draft was a lot of fun because there were lots and lots of wide receivers and running backs drafted. The Browns ended up spending on Nick Chubb. Again, that's important. An early second rounder on a running back is a good bit for a running back. And if you look at what Chubb does well, which is being that big bruiser on early downs, he complements what the Browns have in Duke Johnson perfectly. And that's why Carlos Hyde's fantasy value died on Friday night. It's hard to project things right now because we don't know much about how this trio of backs is going to be used, but I do think Chubb will easily outrush Carlos Hyde this year, barring injury. The issue is that Cleveland is a hot mess for fantasy purposes due to the number of weapons there. And we know Duke Johnson is the primary pass-catching back in that offense right now. And for the people who say, they'll just put Duke and Chubb on the field at the same time, it's a lot easier said than done. That doesn't happen all that often for a reason. And with Jarvis Landry cemented in the slot, there are less places for Duke Johnson to actually move around to. So that's why Chubb's short-term outlook in PPR formats is not all that attractive. I actually only have him for 14 receptions this season. Now, soon after Chubb was Ronald Jones, who went to Tampa Bay. I'm not as concerned with the equity spent here only because they had probably the biggest hole at the position in the league. Like whoever they got at running back was going to be significant to the fantasy football discussion. And admittedly, I wish it wasn't Ronald Jones. The biggest red flag for me with Jones was that he really didn't catch a lot of passes in college despite sort of being the mold of a typical dynamic pass catching back. 
He's quick and fast, but he's also a little underweight. He has a similar BMI to Christian McCaffrey, but his reception share was low at about 4% during his final collegiate season. It was far lower than what we've seen from the typical successful back in the NFL. So I do have some hesitation there, but he fell into probably the best situation that you could possibly find for a running back. He could carry the ball 230 times and catch 30 passes right away because of situation alone. But let's look at the teams who made moves on day two that weren't necessarily based on need. Moves that clearly indicate they love the player that they got. The first is Carrion Johnson going to Detroit. Remember last year when I referenced the Chiefs liking Kareem Hunt after trading up to select him? That they made a move to get Kareem Hunt? That's exactly what Detroit did with Carrion Johnson. And now he joins a backfield with LeGarrette Blunt, Amir Abdullah, and Theo Riddick. I really don't mind Johnson as a player. He should be able to do it all at the NFL level, but not necessarily do one thing incredibly well. The main issue with his landing spot is that we immediately have a lot of questions to ask. Theo Riddick is there, who we know is a great pass catcher. The Lions have been a historically pass-happy team with Matthew Stafford as well. And then they have LeGarrette Blunt, who could see goal line touches. And then there's also Amir Abdullah, who's probably done for, but he still exists on the depth chart. So this isn't exactly a Kareem Hunt situation. Carrion Johnson has to fight off more bodies and more players who have niche roles. But if this were some random fourth rounder, the ability to do that would be much more difficult. That's why his projection may look a little bit mediocre. Right now, I only have him for 147 carries and 47 targets, but his ceiling can climb given we know the team loves him. Carry on, carry on. Now, there were two trade-ups in the second round to get wide receivers too. One of them I've had a hard time figuring out, and the other was very, very easy to understand. The tough one was Dante Pettis, who went to San Francisco. Now, the 49ers have a depth chart that's lacking at wide receiver. You've got Pierre Garçon coming off a neck injury, Trent Taylor in the slot, and Marquise Goodwin as the flanker. We've got a situation where each of those guys have pretty specific roles. According to Pro Football Focus, Pettis didn't run much from the slot in college. So that's a good thing for Trent Taylor. What's bad for Trent Taylor is that the 49ers got a super productive Richie James late in the draft, and I do think that Richie James could compete for those targets in the slot. But John Lynch did mention that Pettis can move all over the field. The question is just how quickly can he find the field consistently? And given he's a wide receiver and not a running back, there's a little more time to get adjusted to the game, which is why I don't think we can project him to be a starter for the full season, even without huge competition. But there's also a ton of opportunity for him to rise up draft boards. Now, the other trade up to get a wide receiver that I'm feeling pretty good about is when the Bears went up and snagged Anthony Miller. His college production placed him in about the 80th percentile as a receiver. And if you listened to last week's wide receiver podcast with the GOAT, Evan Silva, you may remember Evan gushing over Miller as the most undervalued wide receiver in this class. And to be honest, I think Miller instantly becomes a starter in that Bears offense. He can play all over the field. His ceiling will be capped a bit because Allen Robinson is there, but if someone like DJ Moore can't grab hold of a big enough share in his offense, I think there's a chance Anthony Miller is fantasy football's best rookie wide receiver this season. As of right now, I have him at about 48 catches, 575 yards, and three to four touchdowns. Now, I'm not going to be able to go over every single relevant fantasy football player that was drafted on today's show because we'd be here for hours. And we've also got months for that type of analysis. I want to stay on topic in the theme and read between the lines with these picks. Like, we shouldn't be surprised that Arizona got Christian Kirk, a player who can replace Larry Fitzgerald and who plays a position of need for the Cardinals. James Washington is a great Martavis Bryant replacement. Those types of picks were kind of obvious. Cortland Sutton was not an obvious selection, though. 
Denver has Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders, but they pick Sutton, who's a prototypical X receiver in the second round. I actually think though that Sutton can find the field immediately because the Broncos are really missing a piece of their offense in the slot. They don't have a player to play there reliably right now, and Sutton being on the field would shift Emmanuel Sanders to the slot. Sanders played about 10% more snaps from the slot last year than Demarius Thomas, but neither of them were playing there a lot. So while we may be surprised by the pick, wide receiver was a need for Denver. I don't think Sutton's going to go ham this year by any means because he's third in the pecking order there, but the pick did make sense. And if you're a Carlos Henderson fan, his breakout probably won't be coming soon. Denver also spent a third round pick on running back Royce Freeman. If you guys read my top 20 rookie rankings heading into April that was on numberfire.com last month, Freeman was up there after having a really complete production profile in college. I don't think that Denver spends a third rounder on Freeman if they truly believed in D'Angelo Henderson and Devontae Booker, especially considering Booker's been a pretty ineffective back over the last two seasons. In 2016, Booker's yards per carry rate was 0.67 yards lower than his running back teammates. And then last year, it was 0.28 yards per rush lower and his success rate has been below average as well. So I expect Royce Freeman to contribute immediately. Right now, I have him at about 229 carries, 942 yards, and five to six touchdowns on the ground with another 30 receptions through the air. Like Carrion Johnson, he wasn't a back who did one thing specifically great in college, but he can do it all. And that's a great situation for a player without a lot of competition. In the fourth round, there was a really interesting selection with Edo Smith going to Atlanta. You may see the Falcons' backfield as crowded, and it is crowded, but Tevin Coleman's a free agent next year. And as I said earlier, the Falcons have enjoyed targeting both Coleman and Freeman out of the backfield since they entered the league. Ito Smith profiled to be a satellite back at the NFL level after catching 132 passes over his last three years at Southern Mississippi. His production was actually amazing, and it made no sense that he wasn't invited to the Combine. So I truly do think that they see Smith as someone who may be able to step in and fill Tevin Coleman's role a bit in the passing game when Tevin Coleman is inevitably gone. And to me, that makes him a good dart throw in rookie drafts. I like Ito Smith as a prospect, and I like the long-term fit. Now, speaking of running backs, is Marlon Mack going to be something in fantasy football this year or what? Entering round four of the draft, I thought to myself, man, the Colts really just need an early down guy to complement Marlon Mack perfectly. And then they drafted the pass-catching Naheem Hines, a player I love, proving that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Hines is someone who can play as a receiver and not just a running back, and he will hurt Marlon Mack's potential even if you believe that Hines is just a special teams and Swiss Army Knife type player. It's going to hurt Mack in some way as a receiver. And then the Colts got the more prototypical early down guy in Jordan Wilkins in the fifth round. Wilkins was an average running back in my model because he only had one real year of production at Ole Miss, and he wasn't this big workhorse back. He saw a decent enough share of carries in 2017, but he also averaged fewer than 13 attempts per game. But he was efficient with a 6.52 yards per carry average. And here's something really interesting that I found post-draft. If you take a player's rushing yard share and subtract his attempt share from it, you're essentially looking at players who did the most with their rushes. It's not really a predictive thing, just a different way of viewing production and efficiency. I've done this before on this podcast. But when looking at this draft class's final season production, the player who ranks first when doing this exercise is Jordan Wilkins. His rushing yard share was about 20% higher than his attempt share, and that bested Rashad Penny's. The Colts told us with their actions that they don't really care about the running back position right now. But we also have to keep in mind that Marlon Mack was a late fourth round pick himself, and he also wasn't much of a grinder last season. 
Among the 72 runners with 50 or more carries a season ago, Mack was second worst in percentage of carries that went for zero or fewer yards, and he was 11th worst in carries that went for two or fewer yards. So I think that Jordan Wilkins, despite only being a fifth round pick, absolutely has some opportunity as long as the Colts don't get a free agent running back like CJ Anderson. Now guys, there are a lot of other things that we have yet to analyze. Like how the Bills and the Seahawks didn't really invest in wide receiver help. Or how the Packers now have a lot of players competing for the third wide receiver spot. And by the way, I really want that third wide receiver to be Equinemius St. Brown. You've got Kalen Balaj in Miami now too, and it does look like Alex Collins was a big draft day winner for Baltimore. I just can't get to all of that right now. I mean, I didn't even talk about Darius Geis that much. But for number fire premium members, I do plan on posting rookie projections to the site at some point this week, so be on the lookout. Otherwise, guys, make sure that you're subscribed to the Late Round Podcast by searching for it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you're not following me on Twitter, I'm on there, at LateRoundQB. If you've got questions for Friday's mailbag show, you can hit me up on there or email me at jj at numberfire.com. Appreciate you guys. I'll talk to you later in the week.